Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochilillo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cochilillo, and today we have the Zen master, Andre Hala, and he has a new book out called, what was it again? There Is No You. There Is No You. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. This is the second time I've uh, been invited and I'm really excited, especially to catch up with an old friend. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so uh, if there is no you, then who are you? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, the, the, the book is grounded definitely in Buddhism, but it is not entirely uh, orthodox in that sense. Um, it definitely deviates to, to some degree where I, where I put my own fingerprints on uh, this analysis, this scrutiny of the self. But to begin, the Buddha talks about uh, suffering and the fact that humans suffer primarily because they don't understand themselves. They, we, we have an, um, an intuitive sense that there is some I inside of my body, almost like a little, a little homunculus, which is just like a little person who's uh, like Homer Simpson. <laughs> and he's, uh, manning the wheels and the cogs of our like through his command center, which is our eyes, and he hears everything that we hear, and it creates this disembodied experience where uh, we seem to think that there's an internal eye which is realer than our experience. So as if there were somebody who is actually experiencing these things through our sense organs. And so the Buddha, um, he questions this and he has a very systematic approach to it. And he says that when we analyze our experience, we realize that there is only experience. There is no experiencer. There is no thinker thinking the thoughts. There's just thoughts that are arising. And we could talk a little bit about, you know, where, how that occurs and um, creates this illusion that there's some sort of solid entity inside of our bodies almost like a soul or spirits i guess in psychoanalytical terms they would call it you know there's a there's an ego of some sort and what i'm trying to do in true buddhist fashion was to challenge that on every level and get us to the point where we realize that there doesn't need to be a thinker and there doesn't need to be a self and i'm arguing because there is none uh, there is just simply experience there's no middleman who's witnessing the world, there's just witnessing. There's just hearing, just seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. And we have this organizing principle which, which allows us to feel as if there were, there were self. I mean, the self is useful. The, 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 um, the sensation of a self is useful, but it doesn't have any empirical reality to it at all. It's just like a cloud. Um, if there's no self, um, then where do the thoughts come from? Like, where did he originate? Um, well, I think a, well, there's a very important way of understanding uh, the Buddhist doctrine of karma, uh, a unique approach. And the, sorry, the author's name escapes me, but it's a Lama 
um, it's in it's in the appendix of my book. And uh, what he talks about is that what we commonly identify as ourself, our impulses, our our habits, our preferences, our likes, our dislikes, all these things are just habit energy, which um, were born in, in in the unforeseeable past whether you believe in, in, in rebirth or reincarnation or not, or it's just these things are genetic predispositions or they're conditioning. Point is that all these things that we identify as are self, right? I like uh, vanilla ice cream over chocolate. I think that that's my preference, but in, in fact, it's just a form of conditioning in, informed by a variety of factors. But the problem is that I cling to this this preference as though it were real and as though it were actually mine. Uh, so when thoughts arise, they're they're arising within um, a system of habit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for instance, if you if you listen to the way that I speak, it's distinctly different than the way you speak, and that's because I'm used to speaking this way. The more that you do something, the more inclined you are to continue doing that, and so. Thought, thoughts you can imagine or are, are, are understand it as simply their patterns in human habit. In the same ways we have speech patterns, there are certain habits that we uh, are prone to. And the more that we think in certain ways, the more, uh, that we're, the more likely we are to continue that way. Now I'm, now I'm using the term, I'm using the subject we or I loosely. Uh, mm-hmm. I just use it for grammatical purposes because otherwise I really couldn't communicate. But what, uh, what I'm suggesting here is that there is no central I and that any sense of I-ness is purely conventional, useful. Uh, I completely admit that it's useful, but it ultimately has no, um, no basis in reality. You're never going to locate any thinker, self, feeler, seer, hearer, and so forth. None of those things exist. So if none of those things exist, um, so I'm going to have to assume that you're saying that, that there's no soul, which would mean that human beings are nothing but a sack of flesh and bone. Uh, well, there's two ways of approaching that. So there's, the Buddha breaks it into five skandhas. And he says, I mean, and, and I don't, we don't need to, to go into detail about what those are, but he, what, he suggest, what he's saying is that the, when we investigate our experience of life, of who we are, our immediate experience, that we're not going to find anything that we could finally locate definitively as being a self. Anything that's me, I, or mine. I can't say this is my arm because in order for there to be an, uh, a my arm, there has to be an ownership of that itself. Okay. And so when we, when we investigate, we notice that we do have a body, there is a body, but there is no owner of that body. There's no central, um, you know, CEO in charge of our experience. So certainly we are flesh and bone, but there's a lot of other factors that contribute into that as well. Like I said, there's habit energy, which Buddhists can call karma there's uh, patterns of behavior. There are, I mean, there's cultural forces at work here, psychological forces. So there's a lot of things that are going on, but ultimately there would be no abiding singular 
uh, entity ins inside of your body, which is what we normally think there is. We intuitively think there's some I in here. And it's okay to treat it that way when somebody steals your identity online. Certainly at that point, it's useful to have an eye. If you hear a, a tiger growl in, in the forest, it's useful to operate as if there were an eye. Run, just get the hell out of there. But to really believe that there's some abiding, permanent self looking out at the world creates a lot of disharmony and, and suffering. Because naturally, there's an I, and then there's others. Mm -hmm. And that, that others is not just other people, that others is the entire world. I am completely separated from this world. And usually people are prone to one of two, two viewpoints. It's either the world is crazy, and I'm sane, or I'm, I'm messed up, and the world is sane. Everybody else has their, their shit together, but me. I'm a mess. And both of those are really problematic. So if we see through this mm -hmm. illusion of the self, then we're less likely to take it seriously. I uh, was it, I'm at the, oh, I have his book over here. Uh, you and I went to his, um, his Dharma talk. He says, no self, no problems. Yeah, Anam. <laughs> yes, Anam, there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, if there's no self, is there an us? One of the one of the terms that they used to, uh, in in Buddhism, even as early as uh, the earliest schools of Buddhist thought, is the Tathagata, which means "thus come." And so, there's this emphasis on transcending the boundaries of language and understanding that I, we. Us, these are just, they're useful terms, but they're conventional. And that our experience of reality, even mundane reality, right here, sitting here in my chair, it always is, is one or two steps ahead of my ability to conceptualize it and certainly to express it. Okay, so, so words serve a, a distinct function, but they have their limitations. And when we talk about us, I think that's a, that's a better step it's a it's a point in the right direction but ultimately even us we oneness unity however we want to we want to talk about uh reality as as one seamless whole i think eventually we have to abandon that term as well it's more useful to think about us all right so like mm -hmm. i heard uh um I heard somebody the other day talking to coworkers and they were talking about the election and they, they said that they, these are two white males and they were talking about how they felt like there was a target on their back in America today. All right. And that's the power of the eye. That's that self-centered I, 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 I have problems. The world is attacking me. It is more useful. I agree to shift our attention to the we. Okay, and I wanted to say to them, could you imagine what it's like to be a black person in America and being pulled over by a police officer? Talk about having a target on your back and being frightened. So if these, if these two people could shift their viewpoint from I, I, I centered to we, that would certainly be helpful. Absolutely. So when you sit down to vote, are you voting just for you? 
or you're voting for every other person in this country who, did, who has never had the opportunity to voice themselves. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that we or us is a, or, or is, is a more helpful pronoun, but ultimately even that has to be recognized as being conventional. It's, it's, uh, it's a pointer in the right direction, but eventually we're going to have to see through all language. Right. Um, one of the things that, that I, I've been doing a, a lot of lately is interviewing people that have had life after death experiences. And um, when, 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 when a person dies and their consciousness still exists, what is that consciousness? Like, like for example, in my case, um, a couple of years ago, I had a, a, an epileptic seizure and I was out for about 20 minutes. And during that 20 minutes, I was still having an experience. I was like in a void. You know, I wasn't in a body. You know, it was like, it was just color and sound. But I was still aware. I still had awareness even though mm-hmm. I wasn't into my body. And, and that seems to be a really common thing with, with, with people that have seizure, with near-death experience, um, with people that take things like ayahuasca and DMT, um, people that are different types of trance states. Um, how, how would uh, the, this idea or the Buddhist perspective explain that type of phenomenon? That's always been a sticking point for Buddhists. If there is no self, then who or what is being reborn? And how is it even logistically possible for, for this, whatever we call it, to consciousness to then to, to leave one body and enter another body? Um, I mean, one possible explanation, and I'm not advocating it, it's just I'm putting it out there, is that, that like I said before, is this idea that karma is simply our habit energy. And so what is thrusting us out of one body into another or the, or the force that is uh, going to continue our consciousness is that habit energy, that, that just cellular instinctive drive to continue life. You know, like when somebody pushes somebody else's head beneath the water, that involuntary instinctive response to just come out of the water you no matter what even if this person's no matter what state they're in you know they, they could be hate their lives uh mm-hmm. they could have been suicidal one moment before i think if you were to put somebody's head underwater they would in, intuitively just fight for life right, that's why they like waterboarding so much yeah absolutely um and you know here, the example i use in my book was one about my grandfather uh he'd been a hunter his entire life and uh towards the last three years before he died he had a stroke and it rendered like half his body um paralyzed but he would frequently ask my parents who were caretakers for him he'd say can you get me my gun now they 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 unloaded it so don't worry but they would hand him this gun and he would like to hold his rifle and my father, who was also a hunter, was so frustrated because he wanted to just say to my, my grandfather, like, you're torturing yourself. You're not going to hunt again. Of course, he didn't say this. But my grandfather was clinging physically, literally at this moment, to this symbol of 
his 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 salad days, right? His youth when he was healthy and he could go out and enjoy nature and hunt. So if you imagine that that's what somebody's doing with one aspect of their personality, hunting, for instance, now multiply that exponentially for existence itself, right? We we innately cling to wanting to be alive. Mm-hmm. And so, so one potential answer, I suppose, could be that it is this this habit energy that is thrusting us from one body into another, um, and that that perhaps is it, it can explain what it is that continues people after after their their body has ceased. Um, I'm, and I've never had experience like that myself. And so I can't speak to whether there is the potential for reincarnation or rebirth. Um, the Buddhists have, they've, they've come up with all sorts of intricate metaphysical explanations for how that's possible. Um, my book is more, and the work that I'm interested in is more user friendly, um, and grounded in, okay, how do we apply this? to right here, right now. Mm. And in order to ease both, of course, my suffering, but others as well. Right. right. So, so, so one of the things that, that, you know, attracted me to the Buddhism actually was when I, I read a book by the Dalai Lama called how to see yourself as you really are. And that's when I was first introduced to this idea of no self. And, um, and I really, that's where I really connected with the Buddhist tradition and, and meditative practice. Um, but what, one of the things that, that, that I think about is, is almost just like another way of saying, um, just be selfless, just act selflessly, which I mean, which simply means acting, you know, to benefit others rather than trying to benefit myself. I mean, we're happier that way. I mean, if you just want to talk in terms of practical, uh, practicality, we feel best when we connect with other people, especially in an altruistic or compassionate way. I mean, you feel better when, when you help somebody out. Whereas when we want something for ourselves, whether it's a job promotion or recognition or, um, or a physical object or a physical sensation, once we achieve that, once we get it, we realize that it's not nearly as gratifying as we thought it was going to be. And right. I think we're left with a sense of emptiness and emptiness in, in, a, in an existential sense, a psychological sense, like at a loss. Like I thought that was going to be so much better than it actually was. Right? The, the craving, <laughs> the, craving the, the, the chocolate sundae is better than the actual chocolate sundae. And certainly the, it's better than the feeling that you, you experience after you've consumed the entire bowl of chocolate. Like, oh man, I'm such a pig. But whereas we're left with a sense of a little more lasting satisfaction when we help other people, that's selflessness. And that's the, that's the core of Mahayana Buddhism, whose emphasis is on the Bodhisattva vow, about doing things for other people um, I mean, it's also self-serving in, in, in the sense that you are 
transcending or seeing through mm-hmm. the the illusion of of separation right that's and that's that feeling of when i say separation i mean isolation we feel adrift in a world that's indifferent to us or even hostile at times doesn't care about me nobody understands me and all this i i i centered thinking just makes us miserable right. at least it's it for me <laughs> So, 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 so how about this? Like, 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 let's say, for example, you and I hop in the car and we drive to Sonic, right? And mm-hmm. I have a choice. I can either buy myself a Sunday and eat it in front of you. <laughs> okay. Or I can buy you a Sunday and you can eat it in front of me. Or we both, I could buy us both Sundays and we just chill out and enjoy it together. Which way is right. the best way? <laughs> Uh, well, COVID aside, <laughs> we, we, uh, obviously if we both, um, all things equal, if we, bo- if we both get a bowl of delicious ice cream, I mean, but it's almost, it, it speaks to almost being like being a parent is being a grown up means to put off your own needs temporarily and to care about, it could be the boss's imperative. It could be the child's demands. But there's, there is a satisfaction. I mean, we know this in, in cognitive terms, they call them mirror neurons. So when you're happy, that gives me a cue a me, um, on, a, on a psychological level, on a cognitive level, that everything's okay. And so then I start to feel better about myself. So even watching you enjoy the ice cream itself would be rewarding, I think, for, for a person. Uh, is it as rewarding as having a delicious scoop of vanilla or, or whatever whatever it is rocky road i don't know um but the more we we erase and see through this illusion that they're uh that i'm some separate entity independent of the of the rest of the world and all of the people then we're not really at odds with with reality we're in, we, we're, we're working towards communion more right um and that's an important ideal I think is lost in this country. We're so fractured, and not just this country, but we're so fractured as humans and, and fragmented and all we do is see a po- opposition. Mm-hmm. All right. And this is not just a question about, about being human because I don't think the solution is just for humans to get along better with one another. I mean, we feel divorced from nature. We feel divorced from um, one another, certainly. And in another sense, we feel divorced from ourselves, alienated, right? You have an impulse and then you feel guilty about that impulse. And now we're torn on, on another level um, psychologically between ourselves. And that doesn't have to occur because what I'm, what I'm suggesting here is that ultimately there is no self. Mm-hmm. There's just the impulse. All right? And then there's just the guilt, but there is no actual feeler. There's no entity that is experiencing this. Um, is there a difference between this idea of no self and just say um, this, an idea of like, um, I don't know, maybe like atheism, you know, where it's just, or like nihilism type of view where where just like nothing matters period well i think when we see through the illusion like, like itself, i think it, i think one of the things that, that sometimes i think buddhists um confused is that I, like 
a difference between no self and simply just saying, oh, I don't exist and nothing exists. Well, I think what, I think what we're, um, we're speaking to is that nothing ultimately exists. On a day-to-day uh, basis, my car exists. If I run in a straight line with my eyes closed, regardless of whether I believe there's a car, I'm going to break my kneecaps because I'm going to run into it. But on an ultimate level, there is no carness, meaning you're never going to find the be-all, end-all, final carness. There's a steering wheel. So we deduct the steering wheel. Is there, is there still a car? Well, yeah, it's a car without a steering wheel. All right, well, what about if we take away the tires? All right, so if we deconstruct the car, at what point are we going to identify the core carness? Well, you're not because it's a concept. It's a useful concept. The same applies to this sense of a self. That just because there ultimately is no self doesn't mean that reality doesn't matter or that physical forms are insignificant. You drink a smoothie, you don't drink bleach. Even though there's no bleachness to bleach, I'm not going to drink it. It's still toxic. So suffering, suffering is real. And it freaking hurts. All right. So just because things aren't ultimately real and that they exist only conventionally doesn't mean that they're not important. Morality matters. Who you vote for matters. Uh, what you eat in the morning, it all matters. Of course it does. So I don't know that it's about, it's not about erasing these things and their value. It's just putting them in their, their proper place. There's nothing wrong with being a child, but a child is not an adult. So as long as we recognize what their proper role is, then we could be more honest about what the what what our relationships to our experiences, right? So if I really believe that getting a new video game is going to change my life, I think I'm fooling myself. And that 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 clinging, that grasping is rooted in the idea that that video game has some sort of video gameness. It's got some long lasting abiding thing that's going to make me another thing happy and it just doesn't because we live in a world where everything changes and sooner or later you're going to get bored with any experience it's going to become commonplace but the illusion uh that that the in, uh, modern industrial um capitalist complex industrial complexes it tells you no you're buy one more thing and then you'll be happy right so the advertising for instance capitalizes on the human inclination the the belief that there is a self and that if you only go and you get more other things that that'll make you happy we know that's not true right so as 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 a zen master have you ever considered packing up your family and going to just live in a cave (laughs) <laughs> no, but there's no internet there. <laughs> How would I speak to people like you? Uh, you know, not not realistically. I mean, I'm ma- happily married. I got two children. I got a dog. I have a home. I have I have a career. So I think the the the, the challenge or the condition, for lack of a better word, of of a modern Buddhist or practitioner of introspection, meditative practice, contemplative practice is. How do we continue our lives, realistically speaking, in a modern context while simultaneously balancing it with the insight uh, of, of our practice? 
right? A monk's had it easy 200 years ago. It, I'm talking in terms of, I mean, certainly they didn't have any of the advantages of, of medicine that we have today, but they also didn't have any of the distractions. So the practice was simpler in that, in that respect. Lay people's practice is enormously challenging because there's so many distractions. But that also means it's, it's extremely um, fruitful as well and more exciting. But I don't see uh, escaping somewhere as being a viable option for me ever. Uh, plus, I like to play guitar, so electric <laughs> guitar. Where would I plug my amp in? <laughs> oh, you have to buy a generator. Yeah, <laughs> and then you got to buy a generator, then you got a refrigerator. And now you, you got to walk to the gas station every couple of days. Exactly. You're right, right back where you were. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, one of the things that I guess that I, I think about, well, like, you know, like, and I guess my, my listeners might not know our, our history, but you were my, my Zen teacher for quite a while. Right. And and I was probably one of your most difficult students ever. No. <laughs> I, I hope I, I certainly hope because I would pride myself on that. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, like, like for me, there's always been parts of, of Zen and, and, and Buddhism that I connect with, and, and then there's you know parts that I I don't connect with, and um, one of them. You know, like I said, I, I kind I do connect with the idea that that there that that I'm not me. You know, I mm-hmm. I don't I don't believe that I am me. Um, but I do sometimes think that possibly, um, that 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 the brain is less of a hard drive and, and computer, but possibly acts more as a receiver of information so mm-hmm. therefore i'm just more of a conduit of energy and information rather than the actual energy and information in mm-hmm. and of itself um but to me like, i've never found any buddhist text that that conveys it in that type of uh manner i mean it's an interesting way of understanding it the way you framed it. I mean, it, on some on some degree, the more we examine our experience, the more we examine the natural world, I think what we, we always see are relationships. Right? The, the, there is no distinct separation between the, the tree and the soil that it's embedded in or the water that it uses to nourish itself or the sunlight. And any sort of distinction between them is purely nominal. It's a human, it's a human convention. And so if we reorganize the way we see the world um, and we see it as relational, or that's one way of seeing it, then what we get, what we're noticing there is biofeedback all the time, right? Uh, We are not a permanent unchanging entity staring out at the world uh, as hardware, just processing what the world is giving us, right? We're, we're constantly interacting with everything around us. All there is is interaction on some level. And we know that on a, a cellular, molecular, atomic level, everything's in flux and everything's moving around. So in what, in what sense can we say that there's any hardware at all? 
There's just interaction. There's just flux and there's just Mm -hmm. change. We suffer when we try to insist that there is some I that is not changing. Because then, then we are imposing how we want the world to operate onto the, how the world actually operates. So so then we're talking about more or less impermanence. In Buddhism, when you talk about emptiness, emptiness of self, anatman, uh, uh, shunyata, shunyata, or impermanence, these are all aspects of expressing the same thing. I mean, the Buddhist practice is about, look at the world you live in. Do you see anything that's substantial as in it, in the sense that it doesn't change? Even a rock will erode. Yes, it takes longer, but it will erode. Nothing abides permanently. Everything's in a state of flux. Some things more than, uh, apparently more than others. But the re- one of the reasons we suffer is because we don't like change. Sure, we do when, when we get a new boss and our old boss, boss sucked. Or uh, when you go and get a new guitar. Fantastic. Cool. That's great. But in large part, instinctively, we cling to old habits. We cling to the way things were. I mean, you see this in political movements people don't want things to change and when you expect and insist that reality doesn't change you're your first rude awakening man mm-hmm. so if if we just in a sense um acclimate ourselves to the way that the world actually operates we're we're we're, we're less prone um to inflicting misery on ourselves and on others. So one of the other theories that I've come across uh, while doing this podcast, and it, it, it kind of makes sense to me, um, you know, when it comes to change, um, I, it's been explained to me like this, like, like everything is energy and everything vibrates. Everything is basically almost like sound. And um, the, the, the higher the vibration, um, the, the easier it is for people to, to, to change. Or just a little bit, they're more fluid, essentially. Okay. Where the lower the vibration is, the more solid uh, things become and the harder it is to, for them to change. So then you have two types of people. You have people that are at a higher vibration and you have people that are at a lower vibration. What would your take on that type of thing be? Let me see. So I I could address that in two ways. First, I think so much of who we are is context bound. So who am I with you is different than who I am with my, with my, my family. And people are very good at compartmentalizing that. Some people are, other people are not. Sometimes they just insist on being the same person and then they get fired because they don't understand that their boss is not their friend. Um, so I think that I might be flexible in some situations, context, relationships, whereas I may be inflexible in other ones. So I think, you know, it depends. Like some people are fantastic musicians, for instance, and they're extremely adept in that. They might be jazz musicians who who are all about improvisation, but they can be extremely rigid in their private lives. Yes. Or or maybe they're they're only rigid with one person. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, we have to, we have to, keep that in mind and then another another aspect another consideration would be 
It's like asking ourselves, what is the true state of H2O? Not water, but H2O. Right. Well, you know, at, at room temperature, it's water, mm -hmm. perhaps, or it could be vapor, depending on what happened before it. Or at certain, certain conditions, it could be ice. There is no natural state to it. It's always specific and context-bound. And so, so I think it's, that it's based on a relationship to its outside. Yes. Um, and then eventually, and eventually in, inside and outside disappear because these are just simply conventions. These are notions that we have as if there were some inside of me looking out at an outside world. That's, those, those are prepositions inside, outside. They mm -hmm. could be helpful. Right. So I'm like, dude, grab my keys. And you're like, where are they? I said, they're on the desk. Well, on the desk is different than in the desk especially if we're in a rush. That's helpful. It's conventional. But to believe that there is some sort of inner me looking out at some outer mm -hmm. world, that's, that's really a limited way of understanding the world. So and, let's, go, and, let's go back to your ice analogy because I think that's a really good analogy. So, so we could say like an ice cube is like a human being who thinks there's a self. Right. And then – once that ice cube is exposed to warmer temperature and it becomes liquid, then that ice cube becomes water and basically just forms to whatever vessel it's in. Mm -hmm. Then it exposes to even hotter temperature and then it just becomes vaporized and steamed. And then it, it really just, just sort of scatters all over the place and just becomes part of everything. Right. And, and so which one is the correct one? Well, it depends on, depends on what we're talking about at any particular moment in time and and the what's important to remember is that the skillful person will switch viewpoints on a moment's notice all right saying that there is no self is not helpful to a to a crying child oh come on buck up suck it up there's no you that's, that's, <laughs> Have you ever that, tried that with your kids? <laughs> no, like I, I would be on the verge of a divorce. Shut up, kid. You don't exist. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's completely skillless. So part of, of what I'm trying to convey is that even no self can become a problem because that's going to become a trap. That's going to become a fixed ice cube viewpoint. And that's dangerous. Even that needs to be let go. That's, that's what Buddhism is, is ultimately teaching us, that we need to transcend language while, this is an important underlined word, while simultaneously using language, both for conventional purposes and to help liberate other people. Because I can't just sit in silence if I want to help other people. It's not going to be helpful for everyone. It may help some, but certainly not everybody. So I have to use words. All right. And we, we're going to see through the illusion of the self while simultaneously, this is tough, using it when we need to use it. I get pulled over a police officer, license registration, you go officer. I'm not going to say there is no self. That's, that's foolish. And, and it's going to wind up in a lot, of, a lot of problems. In the same way as if I were to insist, say somebody was suffering a nervous breakdown. I said, well, you, don't, you know, there's no self anyway. That's not helpful. When somebody's you know, hungry, you give them food. When they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. You don't give somebody who has a peanut allergy a peanut butter jelly sandwich. Mm -hmm. That's not going to be any helpful, even if they are hungry, even if they're starving. So you got to, you know, each, each moment demands 
adaptation. How do you know what adaptation each moment needs? We're going to fail time and time and time again. But I think that we can calibrate ourselves the more practice we have. And that's an interesting word, practice, because in Buddhism, practice, 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 practice. So that, that usually refers to meditative or mind, mindfulness practice. But in this case, it's about adapting to the world. And that, that's, a, that's a more of a Taoist approach. And that's the, the Taoist influence on Chan Buddhism, which is the forefather of, uh, of modern Zen. But I think that a true Zen master is somebody who doesn't get caught in any particular stance, position, viewpoint, and is completely willing to adapt to what reality demands at that present moment. And that, I mean, that's a tall order. That's tough. I fail more times than I can, than I can count. But, you know, the vow, the bodhisattva vow is to help other beings, try to help them as much as you can. Right. And so, yes, you get kicked on your ass because you messed up. Well, then you try again. Mm. And, you, and you learn, right? You learn. I'm not going to repeat that same mistake if I, if I can help it. Right. So, I mean, that's a fantastic question is like, how, do, how do we know when to, I think that's wisdom. Uh, once a person reaches enlightenment, did he stop making mistakes? Uh, I've never met anybody who hasn't made any mistakes. So, um, I mean, people are gonna, you're gonna, we're human beings and we're oh, fallible wait, creatures. You, you've, you've met me. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, well, then you already know the answer. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, we're gonna make we're gonna make we're gonna make mistakes when it comes to mathematical problems. We're going to forget. Oh crap! I forgot to get gas in the car. Of course, those are those are mistakes, per se. Um, but it depends on how we view that. Mistake is just simply a um, is just it's two syllables. And it's, it's a word, and it depends on how we view our lives. I mean, you could just as easily say a mistake is an opportunity to learn. Uh, like our, the great Buddhist uh, master, Bob Ross, would say. What does he call mm -hmm. him? Happy accidents? Just make it a bird. Yeah. Right. And so that I think that's the that's the difference, though, is that the what Zen practice or any sort of practice can do is it, it rounds off our edges and can make us more in that fluid state. Now, remember what I said, though, just because you're fluid on the basketball court doesn't mean that you are in the rest of your lives. Or just because you are you're a race car driver and you could respond in a moment's notice as an expert driver doesn't mean you're going to do that when you're dealing with your in-laws. So practice is about learning to apply that same flu fluid approach to all aspects of our lives. And that's, that's a challenge for everybody. I think we all, we all can use more practice. I don't know anybody who doesn't. And, and the person who says they don't need more practice, be wary of that person as a general rule. I mean, even the Dalai Lama, who's had a lifetime of practice, at the very least, maybe multiple lifetimes, even he's humble enough to, to say, listen, He's got bad days and he's human and he has limitations and he makes mistakes. Sometimes he might be short with somebody and rude, but the question is, do you dig your heels in when you make a mistake and insist that you're right? Like our president does, 
Mm-hmm. Or, or are you honest enough with yourself and you see through the illusion of that ego and you say, I screwed up, man. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the Dalai Lama will call me up and ask me for advice. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't that be something? Then I wouldn't be on your podcast. <laughs> you got the Dalai Lama online. Um. So, so some of these concepts, you know, like in, the, in this, you've mentioned this a couple of times, um, that, that, that human language has limitations and is not able to express certain concepts of the Buddhist tradition. If you cannot teach them through language, then how do you teach them? Well, Zen relies on this um, teaching of uh, direct transmission of the Buddha's mind. And so they have a variety of different techniques. Kungans are one, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping? There is this uh, more intense version of the, the Kungan, which is the Hua Do in some, uh, some schools of Buddhist practice. Zen practice in particular, for instance, they'll say, does a dog have Buddha nature? And then... Uh, Zhao Zhao, the Zen master, said Wu. And so the, the teacher will tell you, what is Wu? Tantric Buddhism has Tantra. So I think there's a variety of different practices that we could use that are non-conceptual. It's not about destroying con- concepts. It's, I think it's about seeing through them. Putting, again, putting them in their proper place. Realizing that they're relative constructs. They're useful tools, but they're not the be-all, end-all. In, in, in their ability to describe reality. I, I've, you've heard me say this a dozen times. There's nothing wrong with a screwdriver so long as you use it appropriately, right? I mean, you could use a screwdriver for its intended purpose. You could use it to pry something open, I suppose. I guess you could use it as a weapon if you needed to, but it's, it's a crappy tool to screw in a light bulb. That's, that's what language and thought. <laughs> yeah, they're helpful. Right. I mean, they're good, they're, but they have to be context-bound. Stop thinking that they're going to explain everything. You know, the human heart is not straight like an arrow. Right. All right? There are, there are, no, there are no straight things in nature. That's our insistence, and it's a use that, that nature follow our order, and that's not how things work. So it can be helpful, yeah. You go to the doctor, doctor tells you, 25 milligrams is a hell of a lot difference between 50 milligrams and sure, certainly more than, you know, uh, 25 micrograms. If they make that mistake, somebody can die. Language is important, but it's not the be all end all. So one of the things uh, um, that, that I have learned from you, one of the most valuable things is direct experience. Like, I remember like the first time I met you, um, you know, I asked you, I said, what is enlightenment? And you just slapped me as hard as you could in the face. <laughs> I and, I be- and, and, and I became enlightened. <laughs> is that how it works? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Zen masters do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were old school back then. Uh, not in, not, they don't do that unless they want to wind up in a lawsuit, I guess. <laughs> okay, if you're living in the cave, but if you got two kids and wife and a car, the dog. <laughs> but, but the point is, you know, the, the only way to really understand what it's like to be slapped in the face is to be slapped in the face. Yes. And, and, right. and to experience it fully. 
to be in that present moment where that's all you're experiencing. There's no you. There's no person doing the slapping. There's just a stinging of the face. Yeah. I mean, look, any musician, any, any athlete can speak to this. Probably anybody in any artistic discipline can, can say, can, 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 can explain this where you drop the self drops off entirely. And there's no notion of a self whatsoever. There's just doing, there's just making, there's just potting, making the, the, the pot, I suppose, or sculpting or painting or playing guitar or making love or, or practicing martial arts. You lose the self entirely. We do this frequently, hopefully in our lives. You know, I think the people who uh, do it more, most often are the people who are probably the happiest because they're not burdened with the continuous haunting of the self and it's, it's insatiable demand for, for food. And by food, I mean emotional food, psychological food, direct experience right here, right now. Stop, stop believing that there's some experience called enlightenment where you're going to realize everything is interconnected and you're going to levitate to work. And instead, what are you experiencing at this present moment? What are you hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching? What are you feeling inside? physically well, what about emotionally these things just appear and they disappear and when we investigate we're not going to find a self You're just going to experience there's just joy there's just sadness there's no person who needs to experience that which means that that's liberating because that means i'm directly experiencing it i'm accepting it wholeheartedly as much as i can and then i let it go when it's time to go Right? I'm not inviting pain to dinner. I'm not, keep, it's not, not insisting that it's going to stay overnight. I'm going to let it come in on its own terms. I'm going to stop insisting that it's my pain, which is part of my story. And, um, and then eventually it will pass, like all things pass. That's both a curse and a blessing for, for humans. The joys of our lives will pass and yeah. uh, the pain will pass. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you live long enough, everybody you know will probably die. Yes, yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the important points that, that I think might be the landmark of, the, of, of my book, there is, there is No You, is about the power of stories and storytelling. And how we, you, not, we don't have just one story. We have a multiple sto multitude of stories. And we're experts as humans of incorporating different ones into different circumstances. My story with my parents at one moment is different than the story I have when I'm with my wife. For instance, you know, my I might say, oh my God, they never listen to me. They're always treating me like a child. That's just a story. Mm -hmm. And the more, more I believe that story, the more trapped I am by it. Instead right. of saying, I don't like how I'm feeling right now and that's okay. And, and yeah. so these stories can be extremely problematic because they become prison cells for us. And uh, we, tell, we tell a variety of different stories at any given moment. And it doesn't even have to be about other people. We tell it about ourselves to ourselves, right? You wake up in the morning like, oh, today's gonna suck. Mm -hmm. uh, well maybe it's going to suck because you're telling yourself it's going to suck because you believe it's going to let right. go of the story see it for what it is it's just an inner monologue and move on
and try to adapt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's still something that I still wrestle with. I, I don't know why I, I constantly am still telling myself all these negative stories that I know are not true. I mean, it comes back to, I hate to, to turn it into like a constant explanation of habit energy, but that's kind of what karma can be viewed as. It's just, it's habit energy. Why do we do things? We do things because we've done them before. In the same way as when you're, you, you, it's hard to quit smoking, quit drinking, or quit snacking. You walk past mm-hmm. the cookie jar. If you're used to eating mindlessly, you're gonna, it's going to be harder to stop. Well, the same thing. That The more mindlessly you, you tell yourself these stories, the more likely you're going to continue telling them until you seize it in the present moment and, and you see it clearly with mindfulness, with awareness. Say, I see what I'm doing. This is just habit that's occurring. I don't need to believe this. And the more you do that, I think the more transparent the story is going to become because you're going to see, you're eventually going to, it's, you're going to see through it. Right now, they seem solid. They seem right. real. They're genuine. They f- appear to be genuine reflections of reality, but they're not. No story can be. Now, some stories can be more accurate than others, right? Who stole, who stole uh, the car? Well, it sure as hell wasn't J. Edgar Hoover. He's dead. Mm-hmm. So that's completely false. But um, all stories are just fragments of reality, which rely upon language and by nature are, are not ultimately real. No story is ultimately true. Hmm. And, that, you know, that, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. Especially it it is. And, and it is also a tough thing to, to get rid of. You know. it, it'll, it'll take a lifetime, right? I mean, even, you know, in some school, um, in, in San Buddhism, uh, there's a Zen master's name is Chinul. He was a famous Korean uh, Zen master. And he says, so you, might have, you might have one awakening moment where you see through. You might have two, you might have 10. The point is it follows with a lifetime of cultivation. You just keep going. I mean, that's what, like when, we t- if you ask most Buddhists why do they have a Buddhist symbol on their or on their altar, like they have a Buddhist statue. Most people will say, "Well, you know, it's it's what I aspire to be like." That reflects the enlightened mind that I that I and all beings possess, and that's nice. But it still implies that there's some sort of self. Right. So instead, if we look at the Buddha Buddha image on this the the altar, and you say that that Buddha reflects the purity of my practice, not the purity in the sense of good or bad, but in my intention to constantly be honest with myself and see through my own self delusion. It's not about uh, myself as a being. It's about the quality of how I'm honest with the world. And, and that's, that speaks to my capacity to wake up, but dude, it's, it's tough. It's moment after moment after moment. You're going to make mistakes but it requires uh, relentless honesty. And that's mm-hmm. tough. That's a tough commodity in this world. It, it is, it, especially when we live in a world with so many, um, I can't even, I won't even use the word false, but just so many narratives in general that do not align with each other. Right. I mean, I think that it's interesting. Um, I, I imagine the big, the largest critics of of my work would be those who ascribe or subscribe rather to 
to a narrative, even a, especially a historical one. Like, you know, for instance, you talk about the teachings of Jesus. Well, there's a belief that there was a man in Jesus and he did this and he did that. And what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that, that that's just a, that's a story, just as when we tell ourselves other stories. Some stories are better than other ones, but ultimately that story is just a, is just a conventional narrative. And we need to, and, and, and it, what it does is it reflects all sorts of priorities, religious priorities, historical priorities, uh, historical power struggles, and that ultimately none of, no single story, or even all stories combined, no story, singular or plural, can encapsulate reality. And that's, that's, that's a, you know, people are going to have a hard time accepting that. And that includes Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely does. It includes my story. My story, my life story is, ultimate, is way more complex than my inner narrative could ever account for. You know, there's all sorts of crap in my life that I've forgotten. Most of it I've forgotten. But that doesn't mean that it didn't have an impact on me. Right, I could have eaten something when I was three years old and it's been sitting dormant in my stomach and it's going to kill me when I'm 65, theoretically, right? Right. I've forgotten about it entirely. It's not part of my narrative, but it's there. Mm -hmm. Just because you forget about something doesn't mean it doesn't exist or didn't happen. Or just because you remember something framed by a story doesn't mean that that's how it happened. These, they're just conventional ways of understanding. So ultimately, there is everything is relative. And there is no ultimate way of seeing things. And that's disconcerting to say the least. We want something hold, firm, something we could hold on to. We call it God, we call it Jesus, we call it Buddha, Muhammad, whatever. From my experience, I've never seen it. Right. It's elusive. It, yeah, I mean, it, I, I think it's uh, just... As, as humans, we're just don't we're we're limited. We're limited in so many ways, and you know, one like one of the things I've learned I learned through practicing Buddhism is because of the limit of the five senses and my own capacity of even understanding. Um, right there, it it just makes every. It, it makes my interpretation of experience fallible. And uh, yeah, I agree. And but there's, I think there's nothing wrong with something being fallible, so long as we know that it's fallible, right? You know, right. I know the monkey. And, and, and I think that's where delusion comes in. Is right. We think it's not fallible. Yeah. Right. And we think that we can somehow create an accurate representation of the world through words and through language and stories. And so we tell ourselves these stories and we get addicted to them and we believe them. And look, they're just magic tricks. There's nothing wrong with a magic trick. Illusion's beautiful. It's, it's entertaining. Just remember that it's illusion. Don't mistake convention for reality. And uh, we do all the time. And, mm -hmm. but, but practice is about, okay, I, I fooled myself. Come back, let's come back to reality here. Right. It's like, um, don't mistake the finger for the moon. For the moon, yes. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with a conventional notion of myself. I think that that's helpful. 
It's very useful. It's, it serves, it serves per, um, important biological functions. It protects me from getting eaten by a bear or swerving during traffic. But it can also be self-sabotaging when I really believe that there's some eye. You've got mm-hmm. an enormous amount of people in this country alone, let alone the world, who are fixated on their sense of I-ness. And they have these stories about themselves. They think they're victims when they're not. Other people are victims, right? Victims of historical injustice and prejudice and discrimination. And there's other people who are just hellbound on proving that they their story is true. Right. Um, and I won't go, I'm not going to go into any detail about who they are. Uh-huh. I think that's kind of, you know, self-evident. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when, when, you, when we talk about going, you know, using the right, approach at the right time like you know there's a time to 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 be fluid and and look at things as like sort of like an absolute and and other times where we have to address things you know in a second we have to do it in a physical or or verbal way Um, one of the things that 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 sounds like to me which i don't know if i've read any zen texts on it but I mean, obviously, it shows up in, in the um, Indian text, which is the middle way. Oh, which is, yeah, I think that it, it, the middle way speaks to our ability to respond to with the appropriate dose. <laughs> fifty milliliters, fifty milliliters. It's not twenty-five, and it's it's not a hundred. Um, when there's a dog attacking somebody, what do you do? Well, in most circumstances, you try to be friendly with the dog. That's not going to work. So you, you have to, on the, on, the, on the fly, on the instant, respond, decide, do you call 911? Do you intercede? Maybe you're going to get attacked yourself. Do you grab a weapon? I don't know. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And that's, that's the mystery. That's life. It's constantly unfolding. Nothing appears to be, at least to my knowledge, written in stone, there's I, I there's nothing that's called fate that I've experienced, and so uh, every it's like it's like an open ended story that's constantly unfolding at, at the present moment, and the middle way can remind us. Listen, sometimes you sometimes you might have to be a hard ass. Sometimes you might have to be mean. There's a fantastic story in uh, the suttas about the Buddha chastising the monks because they. Uh, were inattentive to this one monk who had dysentery. They like um, cordoned him off and they isolated him. And he and the Buddhist saw this. He's like, how could you say that you're practicing my dharma if you're not helping? You're not compassionate towards your, your fellow brother's needs. And he was mm-hmm. pretty harsh with them because that's the medicine that he thought they needed at that point. So middle way doesn't always necessarily mean that, you know, you're, you're moderation only. It can be moderation. But it could also mean being severe or it could mean being compassionate. Depends on what does each moment require. Well, what I think of the middle way or, or, or like I use, you know, for, for me, I use it as a perspective point. Like I try not to look at things from all the way on one side or one all mm-hmm. the way on the other side. But, but I try to view situations from that middle place, which typically is a place of non-bias. Well, yeah, we, we would, uh, ideally, yeah. I mean, imagine, like, when you get in your car, some people press 
uh, the, you know, the, when they get gas, they press the button to reset everything to zero, right? Some people don't, they don't give a crap. You'll see that they're, they're, there's like the, the one selection and the second selection and they're like at 750 miles and the other one's at like 925 and then their odometer reads total like 35,000 miles. I'm the kind of person who press reset every time I get a new tank of gas, okay? Mm -hmm. Think of if we could do that in our lives every moment. I'm going back to zero, going back to zero. What is zero? Zero is right here, right now, what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what I'm smelling, what I'm tasting. And I'm, gonna t I'm not going to forget the past because that would be ludicrous. I'm not going to forget how to read and write. I'm not going to forget that the, the dog on the corner of these two streets is, is dangerous and might bite me. I'm going to remember those things. I'm going to use them in the present moment but I'm not going to be trapped in the present moment either. Right. right. So I'm just constantly trying to stay at zero, stay at zero. If I can. Interesting. And you're going to get up to 25 miles per hour. Like, Oh crap. I forgot to press. All right. Let me go back to zero. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I never hit zero. <laughs> you can strike me as the kind of person yeah. who would. Yeah, I'm, I'm like a 200,000 miles on that. Yeah. Hill. Yeah. From the moment you bought the car till now. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I don't even worry about it. Even though all my lights on, my dashboard are on, I don't even worry about it anymore. You know, like, screw that check engine light. Yeah. <laughs> it's been on for a year. Yeah, you still driving your Jeep? Yeah, I love this Jeep. I'll never yeah. get rid of the Jeep. It's amazing. Even, even though like every one of those lights on my dashboard is on, <laughs> and but when I go to AutoZone and get it checked out, they're like, oh yeah, nothing's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I just ignore it yeah well yeah. you know part of it is we have to you know part of practice is about ignoring all right yeah uh, every every nerve in my body is telling me there's a problem but but wisdom is telling me that there is no problem you know this anxiety is unwarranted ignore it see it for what it is and just proceed and do what it is you have to do mm -hmm. without being without being entangled in the messy snare that is our emotional me and, and me mental uh, landscapes. Already, you know, back to, back to this analogy of, of lights in the car, like say like, like, um, you know, a person might mistake the check engine light for the car not operating, but mm -hmm. yet they're still driving the car. <laughs> it's still yeah, operating, yeah. you know? So, so we, sometimes I think maybe we misinterpret the symbols of, rather than the actual situation. Yeah, people are, people are, are constantly, talking about biofeedback from earlier. We're constantly giving ourselves biofeedback and misreading it as well. And so we think that there's a problem when there is none. Um, and, and that could be, that result could be anxiety, nervousness. It could be PTSD or it could be hypochondria. You know, somebody's constantly thinking that there's a problem when there is none. And then, of course, for them, what's, what's challenging is realizing, well, when is there actually a problem then? If I'm always in a state of, of fear and heightened worry, mm -hmm. when, when, when is my worry actually real? Uh, if I hear a scream at night, is that actually a cause for alarm? <clears throat> right. Kind of, kind of like with my, my Jeep. Like, I'll be concerned, like, um, when it stalls. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Well, well, they say don't, don't. If it's if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 
same thing. Like, uh, you will, you go for your annual blood work. And if they tell your cholesterol is high, change your diet, get more exercise. But until then, don't hyperanalyze everything and, and uh, think that there's a problem unless there's due, due reason to think so. And, and uh, that, that, you know, that goes back to the fact that we are the authors of our own suffering. Yeah. It's that mental narrative. It's that voice inside of our head. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. And then, of course, naturally, if you believe that, you're going to find things that feel wrong. Mm-hmm. You're going to actually make things wrong in your life. Some people are addicted to misery. Um, so um, is there anything that you would like to talk about that I missed? Only, the only thing that I think is worth mentioning was where this, the genesis of this book, uh, I had, you know, there, there are a couple excellent texts out there that speak to this, this Buddhist doctrine or this insight uh, that there, that there is no self, but I wanted something that was compact. My writing, I, I, I'm a teacher, so I write during the summer. And I usually have about like six weeks of uninterrupted time to, to write, which means I'm doing about, two, um, about 22,000 words. And so the, the books that I write are extremely short. Uh, they're pithy. So I'm trying to get to the, the heart of the experience. Um, and I didn't think that there was a book out there that, that spoke to no self in very basic terms directly and in in a, in a short in a, you know in a short amount of space and so i was like you know what i'm going to do this I, w- I want i want to address what i think is a glaring issue um you know buddhists they get wriggly when you talk about no self because it leaves them uncertain and i think the apologists in the buddhist circles especially american or western buddhist circles they want they don't they don't want to turn anybody away by saying, oh, well, there is no self, there is no soul. Um, so instead, they, they sugarcoat it, and they'll say, well, there is no separate self. There's a self, but it's not separate from the rest of mm-hmm. reality. And, and I, think, I, I think they're doing themselves, they're doing the teaching uh, uh, a disservice there, because self, by definition, means separate. Right, and so right. You're, you're 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 giving from what he's borrowed from Peter and given to Paul, and so I think what we need to do if you really want to wake people up and you want to wake up yourself, is you have to look unflinchingly at the, at the, in my opinion, at the, the the fact that your experience proves moment after moment after moment that there is no self, there is no seer. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about belief systems here. I'm not talking about doctrines. I'm talking about direct experience. Look at the way you look at your life right now, right here. My window's opening. I hear the, the, the wind in the trees. I feel a little bit of chill, but there is no eye. There's just cold fingers. The sound of the, the wind. Mm-hmm a full bladder because I drank a whole thing of water before. These are direct experiences, <laughs> but they there is no identifiable source. There's no, there's no experiencer. Right. All right. And I think that 
we we as human beings are past the point where we could you know so you could make certain mistakes when you're like 13 years old 14 maybe 17 years old humanity is beyond that point time to wake up right there is no self you look for it and you ain't gonna find it so let's stop pretending that it is so that was the goal i wanted to get to the point as much as i could i think the book in print form is maybe like 50 something pages um yeah, and I that's that. My, I, th- I think my listeners could handle that. And I'll also post a link to the book in the notes of this episode. And um, and also, you know, I, I know I, I know you guys have been doing like uh, online Dharma talks and meditation again too. Uh, yes. So One Mind Zen, which is run by uh, Unsan Gartland, he is, uh, is a student of mine and he's running, uh, they meet on Wednesday nights and you can find that online. I think if you go to onemindzen.com. Uh, I haven't been able to make it lately. I started teaching again since September and so my schedule is extremely hectic. But yeah, they, they, they post uh, weekly Dharma talks and uh, they have a small group that meets regularly. So if anybody's interested, by all means, join them. They're always open. We're always open to having um, visitors or anybody interested in, in uh, continuing the practice with us. Awesome. Uh, thanks for coming, taking the time to come on today. Thank you for having me. And, and, and to my listeners, you know, if, if you guys are looking for enlightenment or even – uh, just some basic knowledge on Buddhism. Andre is the man. <laughs> he is a man. I don't know. The man. <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, he was my teacher, and I'm the guy that can guarantee enlightenment. <laughs> He's got it, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, hang on for a second. I'm going to stop recording. I'll chat okay. with you for a second. Sure. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.